We open this evening with the scripture by reading from Psalm 66. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. Shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Let's praise our God tonight through prayer and through listening to his word. Let's begin by praying. O oh Lord, you are God and not man. You don't have a physical body. You don't have eyes of flesh, and you don't see the same way that we see. Your days are not as our days, and your years are not as our years. As heaven is high above the earth, so are your thoughts above our thoughts, and your ways above our ways. All nations before you are like a drop in the bucket or a small speck of dust on the scale. You weigh continents as though they were the tiniest of particles. To you, their massive substance is as nothing. They are judged by you to be less than nothing and altogether vanity. In the gaze of your glory, we see ourselves truly. We have had an unsatisfied desire for recognition among men, O oh God. We have provoked one another. We've spurred others on to sin. We've envied the gifts or positions of others when we should have been considering ways in which we could promote our brother or our sister. We failed to encourage one another in love and good works. Oh God, we ask you for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, because of his shed blood, would you encourage our hearts in the knowledge that he has borne our sins and he has carried our sorrows. And because of his sacrifice, we receive only good from your fatherly hand. We ask you, O oh God, to help those who are poor and in need of your help, O oh God, especially in this season of high unemployment, in this time when so many have lost their jobs or when their businesses are in peril, O oh God. Even as we thank you for your mercy and grace, we ask you to help your people. We also ask you to help us, God. Help us to always be ready to give even a cup of cold water in your name to those who are in need. If the poor have ever come to our door and we have not cared for them, let us experience your righteous judgments. Many are the troubles that may come to the righteous, including poverty. Gracious Lord, deliver them out of them all. Make those that are poor in this world rich in faith and heirs of your eternal kingdom. Give them abundant grace to receive the gospel in all of its fullness. And now, O oh God, we ask you to enrich us as we delight in you. Help us to have pleasure in your word and give us hearts that yearn to know you and to be strengthened by your son. Help us now as we come to hear your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Our scripture passage for this evening comes from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17 as we read verses 50 through 54. Hear now the word of God. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut his head with cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way to Sha'arim, 
as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his armor in his tent. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening, for he knows that we need it. Let's pray together. Our Father, would you keep your promise that you make to your people, that you will not withhold any good thing from us. Make us to hear your word truly and rightly, and then give us hearts to believe and treasure those truths and treasures. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we just saw last week that God defeats Goliath through David as his instrument, but there is something more. And, and I have to admit, the way that this sermon came about, I originally wanted to conclude on the point of this sermon. My original plan was that this evening's sermon would be the third point of last week's message. But as I worked on it, I, I continuously found myself with more to say than should be fit into the conclusion of a sermon. And so because of that, tonight's sermon is going to be a little different. Tonight's sermon isn't what I would call an exegetical message. Uh, in other words, not everything that I say comes from me digging directly and deeply from this exact specific text. Um, tonight, I would describe tonight's message as more of a topical sermon that builds off of the David and Goliath narrative and the way it ends. And I guess all of that is my way of saying, um, please don't tell my homiletics professors from seminary. Just let's keep it between us and everybody on YouTube, okay? Let's just keep it on the down low. Well, specifically, I, I'm interested in verse 50. Because verse 50 tells us, There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. So we've seen the victory of God already. God has already felled the giant. But, but here, notice what happens. Goliath is beheaded. But then notice this. Through David, God beheads the giant using his own weapon. David came into the fight using God's own tools. The, the very weapons that God had made. Uh, rocks from the river. No man had ever laid hands on these as far as we know. These were God's tools that David brought to the fight, and yet he completely defeats and thoroughly humiliates Goliath using his own weapon. So you can imagine this, right? On the day of the battle, uh, as Goliath was wont to do, he, he put on his armor, and you could imagine him preparing himself as he takes his sword, uh, and his intention completely, as he takes this sword in his hand, is, I am going to kill an Israelite today. He thought that this weapon that he brought into battle would be used to destroy God's people with. And he had these plans, and God's plan was the opposite, a dramatic reversal of Goliath's intentions. His head ended up being separated from his body by the very weapon that he brought to destroy God's people with. 
Irony is one of my favorite forms of humor. And I, I laugh at ironic things all the time. Um, and this is one of those really ironic moments. Here, the Goliath, Goliath is, and he's brought this weapon, and he is destroyed by his own weapon. So here's the lesson I want us to meditate upon tonight, and I just want to explore its implications. Okay, let's think of the implications of this. God uses Satan's own weapon to defeat him. God uses Satan's own weapons to defeat him. What does that mean? Well, consider all of the ways in the larger scheme of things that Satan attempts to harm God's people. And, think, and as you think of all the ways that Satan tries to do harm to God's people, one of the things that becomes apparent is that the universe is a universe where our God is king, and the schemes of our enemy backfire and end up being used by our God to bless us instead of destroying us. In other words, Satan's weapons end up ruining him. And all of this means that we have to change how we think about victory and how we think about defeat. Because as we think of fighting the fight of faith, uh, maybe we have far too conventional a view of what victory really is. We have to stop picturing victory as conquest and worldly success, and even from a church perspective, raw numbers. And we have to stop thinking of failure as loss and death and suffering. Because the gospel reverses these things in a radical way. And so let me just show you three ways that this is the case tonight. I won't tell you the outline in advance. We'll just see them one at a time. Uh, first tonight, I want you to, to see this, that one of the tools that Satan uses against God's people is persecution. All I want to do is take these different tools that Satan uses against us tonight. I just want to show you the ways that God uses them against Satan. Okay? One of the earliest examples of persecution in the Bible was in the book of Genesis. And you'll remember the story of Joseph as Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Why was he sold into slavery? It's because they despised him. His brothers despised him because they were jealous of him. But then God ended up using that persecution, that persecution of Joseph, to rescue his brothers. He ends up reversing the intention of his brothers, right? Instead of letting Abraham's family line come to an end, he could have just let the brothers die of starvation. He could have let Joseph be sold into slavery or, or not even sold into slavery and just ended up dying along with his brothers in Israel. But instead of letting that happen, he used the persecution of Joseph to save his family. What did Joseph say? In Genesis 50, 20, surely you know those words. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What did he do? He took persecution, the persecution of his beloved Joseph, and he uses it to save his people from starvation. This is what our God did. The satanic weapon that was pointed squarely at Joseph by his brothers ended up being used as an instrument of salvation in a universe where God rules. 
Even the persecution and sale of Joseph into slavery is no accident. Joseph says, it is meant for good by God. Persecution. Meant for good. Satan's own weapon turned against him. In another place, Jesus talks about Satan's plan to scuttle the ship of the church in Luke's gospel. He says this, Jesus says, They will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. You see this. Jesus is warning us so that we're ready, but he's doing something else. He's giving perspective, and he's saying that persecution will be God's way of destroying Satan with his own weapons. He's going to spread the faith that he would like to destroy. You see, Satan holds the, the weapon of persecution, he holds the sword of persecution, and Jesus takes it from his hands. And he uses it as an opportunity to bear witness. And he uses it as an opportunity for more and more people to proclaim Christ as worthy and glorious. Jesus says, Satan thinks that this is your destruction, but no, this is your opportunity. This is the way I'm going to destroy his kingdom by them persecuting you. Another example. What does the narrative of Acts show us, especially in Acts chapter 7? In Acts chapter 7, Saul, not, not converted yet, uh, Saul the Pharisee leads a persecution against Stephen and against the church. And then what is the result of that persecution? You might see that persecution and think it's persecution. The church is suffering. It's a failure. And instead of the Christians remaining in that place, the persecution forces them to, to fan out and spread through the world, and they take the gospel with them when they go. When I was preaching through the book of Acts, the, the comparison I made was somebody who tries to put out a campfire by kicking the ashes. Instead, those ashes end up sparking all over the place and spreading. Right? God takes that persecution and he says, that is a tool that I can use. This isn't from scripture, but this is early in the life of the Christian church. One of the things that happened was that Christians were persecuted by the Romans. And the Romans persecuted the Christians as atheists. They said, you don't worship the pantheon of gods. Therefore, you don't believe in God, And so they said, you are atheists, and they persecuted them. And the church father Irenaeus observed that as the Christians were persecuted, a strange thing, thing happened, something very counterintuitive, because you would think as persecution happens, people would say, well, I don't know what's going on, but I definitely know I don't want to be one of those Christians. Look what happens to them. In your mind, that might actually be how you would reason. And yet you would be wrong, because Irenaeus was noticing that as the persecution increased, so the numbers of the Christians increased as well. This is just a historical fact that as Roman persecution increased, the numbers of, numbers of Christians exploded. 
And so Irenaeus made that comment that he's so famous for, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What does that have to do with you and me? On one level, it could have little to do with us, right? America is a free country. We are, in some respects, protected by the Constitution. Um, we have a country where we exercise freedom of religion. It, it may be the worst persecution that we ever know is public rejection, being denounced by people, being mocked by people. It, it may be that we have trouble getting into elected office. It may be that we have trouble running a business if the crowd and the mob decide to, to um, avoid us or persecute us. That might happen. Those, those things may be the worst that we ever experience. But we should always consider the possibility that there could someday be official government persecution of Christians. But that is the thing. We can never know the future. The only person who knows the future is God Almighty. And maybe the day is coming when we will be persecuted, either by our neighbors or by the state. But here's what I want you to, to think about. I want you to shift, shift the way you think in terms of success, in terms of failure. We need to get out of our head this idea that persecution, if God ordained it for us, would be a bad thing for us. There was a Chinese student at RTS uh, he once told me that he thinks persecution would be good for American Christians. And he, doesn't, he didn't tell me that because, because he wants to see his brothers in the United States suffer. He doesn't want that for us. But he did say this, that, that God uses persecution as a way of waking us up, as an instrument to test us and to wake us up out of sleepy complacency. I, I love freedom. I love being an American. I love the Constitution. And as long as I'm free, I'm going to worship freely. And I'm going to rejoice and thank God that I live in a place where I can worship freely. But understand this and believe it to the core of your being because you need to be prepared for it if it comes. God uses persecution to bless the church. He has done it time and time again throughout our history. If persecution does come, I guarantee you one thing. Our God is good, and our God loves us, and our God is sovereign, and our God is wise, and he is all of those things, not individually, but all together. They are a representation of our Father's character. And if those things are all true, and they are, then our God will use even persecution to bless us and to grow us and to cause us to lean upon him and not upon ourselves. He'll use it to strip us of our comforts, those crutches that we lean on. This is the first tool of Satan I want us to think about tonight. It's persecution. God, God can use persecution. He can, he can turn it. And he can and he has for centuries used it to bless the church and the spread of the gospel. Now, second tonight, I want us to consider another weapon that Satan uses against us, and that is the temptation to unbelief. Now, this second point is going to feel like a real departure from the first one, because this one's going to skew a little, little more philosophical, a little more in the realm of apologetics. 
Um, and it's going to stand out probably in an odd way from the other two points tonight. But as I thought about this idea of Satan slaying his enemy, or God slaying his enemies using their own weapon, all I could think of was we need to make sure to emphasize this point. Now, as we're talking about apologetics, I want to remind you of what apologetics is. Apologetics is the defense of the faith. Uh, the, uh, Peter tells us that we should always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us. Every Christian needs to have hope, and then they need to be willing to say how it is that they have this hope, especially in the face of situations where things feel hopeless. And so apologetics is us going into the world, being believers, and then explaining to others why we have hope. So that's one of the things that, that, that Satan does, though, is he tempts us to unbelief. Now, here's the funny thing about unbelief. Unbelief requires the very thing that unbelief tries to undercut. This is what Cornelius Van Tilly used to say. He used to say that if you want to slap God the Father in the face, first you must crawl into his lap. In other words, he was, what he was saying was that unbelief and skepticism may deny God, but then it also happens from a, a position of dependence upon God. Whether the person railing against God is willing to see that or not. Because you see, even unbelief presupposes and needs the existence of God in order to make its arguments. In order for unbelief to make its arguments, it needs the existence of God. There is no escaping from the inescapable. And God is certainly inescapable. So what does the unbeliever do? What the unbeliever does, and this is in the not this is the less lazy form of unbelief. There's a lazy form of unbelief out there that simply says, "All I want is me. I don't want to think about this." I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to make arguments. I just want to live my life. So there's, there is that kind of unbelief, and I think it's prevalent in our day. But there is also a thoughtful form of unbelief that says, if my unbelief is true, I should be able to give reasons for it. So that's the kind of unbelief we're talking about here. But even unbelief presupposes and needs the existence of God in order to make its arguments. So what does the unbeliever do? They reach for... God's grab bag of tools so that they can argue that the one they got those tools from doesn't exist. So when we're, we're defending the faith, this means in a sense all we have to do is let the unbeliever talk, right? See what they believe, see what matters to them, um, see what they take for granted, the things that they believe are assumed, and then and that they use to argue against God. And so, he, well, again, what Van Tell would say was, was when we let unbelievers talk, in a sense, we give them enough rope to hang themselves. We, we, as far as the argument goes, what they're doing every time they talk is they undercut their own argument. So there's one application of, of this is just let them talk. Listen to what they value. When you're talking to an unbeliever, ask them, what do you think the world should be like? What do you think the world ought to be like? What do you believe is true? And listen to what they say, right? Maybe what they value is justice. Maybe they think there's too much innocent suffering in this world 
for God to really exist. That's a very common argument for atheists to make. They say, look, there's so much suffering out there. How could a good and sovereign God exist? If they value justice, listen to that. Listen to what they say. Justice makes sense in God's universe. So their expectation of justice is sensible and real and valid. All right, we need to acknowledge that. That desire for justice is true and it's good. But here's the question. What does fairness matter in a universe that is devoid of ultimate purpose? If, if they assume that justice does matter and fairness is important, they are assuming a theistic universe where there is a real, true, universal, objective, absolute, unchanging standard. Well, just think about all of, these, all of these things. Those things wouldn't be true in a universe where God does not exist. There would be no universal, true, objective, unchanging standards because matter is always in flux. Matter is always changing and moving around. There's nothing stable and objective in a universe where there is no standard. Just listen to, to the laundry list of complaints from the unbeliever, and what you will see over and over again is a series of deep-seated contradictions, and they're seated so deeply, oftentimes they don't see them. So unbelief will use tools like logic and, and reason to justify itself, but their whole argument will undercut the very reality of these tools that they are using, morality and logic. Think of this. Unbelievers believe in logic, and they want to be logical. In fact, if you tell an unbeliever they are not being logical, they will argue very vociferously, very eagerly, that they are logical people. I'll probably say that you, you Christians are the ones that are not logical, right? They'll want to say that we're not being logical. And yet all the while, in a godless universe... Think of, of, think of what the laws of logic are. The laws of logic are universal, invisible, intangible. You can't touch them. You can't measure them. You can't measure the laws of logic. They are binding laws that can't be consistently accounted for. Unbelievers could not explain to you how something like the law of logic is true. They want you to know they believe that it is true. But they can't tell you why, in an atheistic universe, they would be true. They make sense in a universe with universal, invisible, binding entities such as God, but not in a universe without God. And so as you argue with the atheist, as you converse with the atheist or talk with the atheist, you're arguing, the, the atheist is arguing against the tools that he uses to argue. Right? He's, he's like Wiley e. Coyote sawing on the branch. Meanwhile, he's standing on the wrong side of the branch. He's sawing it off. And he's all the while saying, I believe in branches and I believe in saws. It's you Christians that don't get it. And then he falls. Reason itself would make no sense in a universe where we are ultimately just blobs of jelly and bones trying to stay alive as long as we possibly can. If that's what we are, if we're just organisms trying to exist then reason itself makes no sense. Even, even imploring somebody to use reason doesn't make sense. Why should one blob make one uh, thought bubble and another blob 
make the same thought bubble? Why do you hold that blob over there to the same standard in a universe where there is no universal binding truth holding them together? So when the unbeliever argues against God, he's taking God's tools and he's trying to use them to argue that God isn't there. And this means that anything the enemy throws at God can either be held up to him as exhibit A, B, or C for God's existence. The very weapons that the unbeliever wields in order to say that God is not there ends up showing that God must be there or their argument falls apart or it can't even be made. So, so this is, in a sense, what Paul is describing when he says, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10.4 The point is this. When we consistently present God as the creator, we are making room for God to do what he always does, which is taking the weapons that the enemy wields and turning those tools against the enemy, demonstrating the truth of God, and what he says. Third tonight, I want you to appreciate one final way that Satan tries to attack God's people. And that way is, seems to be very final, but it's not. And it's death. In the book of Job, one of the ways that Satan proposes to attack Job is through bodily sickness, among other things. And so his belief and plan in the book of Job, Satan's presupposition is once Job suffers enough, he will curse God and abandon his faith in him. And yet the threat against our bodies goes deeper than just physical discomfort. Right? Anytime we physically suffer, we suffer that we were reminded that we can die. Any physical illness could lead to death at a certain point in our life. So so even as, as Job is suffering and in terrible physical pain, he makes this statement in Job 13, 15. He says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. So this is this incredible reminder that Satan has many tools that he uses to assault us as believers. So he uses persecution, as we saw, to push us into bending under the pressure. He uses raw unbelief and the temptation to even doubt that he's there at all. But he also uses death, and he also uses the threat of death. How you think about death or how you cope with the threat of death is going to differ depending on your age, depending on your, your spiritual condition, and depending on your life experience. Um, but thinking about death is good for us. It really is. Think about Psalm 90, verse 12. It says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Do you ever consider that David is telling us that it makes us wise to think about our own death? It makes us wise to think about our own death. It makes us wise to think about how we only have a limited amount of time on this earth. This is very counter to our age, right? We live in the, uh, and uh, boy, I hate to do this because I'm too old to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. We live in the YOLO world, the you only live once world, right? Where, hey, I've got to live crazy. I've got to do insane things because I'm only going to live once. 
which if you think about it, it's kind of an argument for being more careful, not less, but anyway. Um, do you ever think about this, though, that it makes us wise to live as people who know that we're going to die, and we keep that knowledge in front of us? As believers, the threat of death comes, as the threat of death comes, we may respond with fear, right? Fear is natural. Uh, it, it generally makes sense, at least in a universe with how God fear makes sense, right? We, we sort of tend to understand, usually, when someone shows fear. The Bible reminds us that fear of people or fear of situations is not a biblical response. He's always telling his people not to fear. He's always telling his people not to fear. The only thing we're told positively to fear in the Bible is God. But see, the Bible shows us that there is a godly way to, to, to respond to the threat of death. Think about 2 Corinthians 1.9. Right, this is a situation Paul is talking about where the threat of death is presented. And look at his perspective, his mature, godly perspective on death. He says, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Think of the reasoning that Paul uses here. He says, we were in a life-threatening situation so that we would rely on God instead of ourselves. See, that, this is not the silver lining that Paul sees, but Paul seems to say this was the real reason that this threat happened in the first place. We were self-sufficient. And then God brought us into the situation where we couldn't rely on ourselves. So, so what is he saying? He's saying the threat of death is something that God uses. John Piper puts it this way. He says, God uses the threat of death to knock props out from under our heart so that we rely utterly on him. From Satan's perspective... The threat of death is supposed to make us tremble. It's supposed to make us not trust God. It's supposed to make us doubt God's goodness and God's plan. But God takes that same tool of the enemy and he employs it for a very different purpose. To steal away the crutches that we lean on. Especially the ones we don't realize we use. It's very easy for us, in theory, to talk about God, and to talk about faith, and to talk about trust. While things are running smooth, when things are running smoothly, man, it's easy to talk about trusting God. You look at the people out there who are suffering, and you say, man, I wonder why those people can't just trust God more. Meanwhile, things are going great for us. The car is running, the bills are paid, everyone in our family is healthy, we feel secure. And we might even think we trust God and say, hey, you should trust God some more. How do you know if you really trust God, though? How do you really know? I'll tell you what Paul says. God kicks the crutches out from under you so you can see where you've been putting your weight all this time. Has God been doing that in this season for you? Has, has he shown you Areas that you were leaning, crutches that you were leaning on that were not the Lord? 
Paul said it. He said, we received the sentence of death so that we would trust God. It is, it is an incredible example of how mature Christians should face death and danger and difficulty, right? When the sentence of death gets passed, Satan is going to be gleeful when you tremble with fear. That's what he wants. He wants you to shake. He wants you to say, I know I talk about God all the time, but when the moment comes, I don't trust him. But you know what he doesn't know is that God will use that same diagnosis, that same death sentence to send you fleeing into the Father's arms. You see, God and Satan have very different designs in the same event. Death and sickness. Satan has his plan. God has his plan. Well, guess what? Satan gets his way in the life of unbelievers, and they're driven from God. And in the lives of believers, those same exact things are used to do the exact opposite. Last week, you might remember, I, I mentioned Charlotte, uh, a woman from my old church back in Kansas. One of the things that always stuck with me is the fact that she had cancer the entire time when I was in seminary. This entire time when I was in seminary and I was sort of living my dream, she was living with all of these setbacks. And, and, and I remember in my last year of seminary getting news that she had died of cancer. And it was so humbling to think that I was learning, I was studying, I was really living this thing I'd wanted to do, do for over a decade. And, and the whole time I said, you know, Lord, I really trust God. I really trust God. And being in seminary and learning the Bible is helping me to trust God even more. But all the while, this woman was living it and she was actually doing it. She was enduring these things. And if we aren't careful, it might be tempting for us to look at somebody like Charlotte and think that she had been defeated, that she had lost the fight. That, that Goliath had, had won, and yet this was a woman who was in Christ. So she fought the good fight. The fight didn't end in, in a way that looked victorious. And the fight of all of our lives does not end in a way that looks victorious. Every one of us, our lives will end in, in a way that isn't pleasant, that might look sad if taken in its own, that might even leave Satan gleeful. But there is a profound reminder here that in Christ, victory doesn't look like victory, and defeat doesn't look like defeat. Beating cancer, beating illness, beating death doesn't mean physically surviving and living a long life. It means remembering that God made us to love Christ and trust Him in all circumstances and love this world less. You see, Satan's plan in suffering and death is for you to love this world and cling to this world and find yourself incapable of saying to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is his plan. I, I can't say it. I love this world too much. I don't want to see it go. I don't want to lose my house. I don't want to lose my family. I don't want to lose all this stuff. I just got that car. It just got paid off. God, I don't want to say goodbye to those things yet. That is what Satan wants you to say. That is his plan. 
in a physical battle like we, like we see here tonight. It's clear who the winner is, right? The, the, loser, the loser dies. The loser gets his head removed. And yet we live in a world where God defeats Satan with his own weapons. Even when we die, we haven't lost. What does it mean that God defeats Satan with his own weapons? It means that God uses even the worst things in our life to bring real, lasting victory. Think about this. When Satan attacks you in some way, whether it's through persecution or illness or some atheist arguing with you, right, his goal isn't to make you sad. His goal is to take away your faith. And then God's work is always to take those attacks and to take those things and to make you grow deeper and to make you strong. Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon that is a fashion against you shall succeed. That is a promise, not because the weapon won't touch you, but because it won't do what the enemy wants. It won't drive you away from the Lord. See, God uses Satan's own weapons against him to draw you nearer. Faith in the midst of suffering is real victory. Why is that? Because the weapon the evil one wields against you may be sickness, maybe may loss, maybe sorrow of some kind. Whatever it is, it will be used by God to grow you, to change you, to mature you, to make you into a, an oak of righteousness. When, when Satan has had his way and, and, and assaulted you from every which way, the result is going to be like Psalm 1 promises. You will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season. That's what God is going to use those things to do for you. You may remember John Newton as the man who wrote Amazing Grace. Um, he wrote another hymn called, I Ask the Lord. And I want you to listen to the life of faith as John Newton portrays it here in this song. Just listen to the narrative, where it starts, where it goes, and where it ends up. Newton says, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know, and seek more earnestly his face. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his continual constraining power, by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? A trembling cry, will you pursue your worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break your schemes of earthly joy that you may seek your all in me. With the eyes of a mature Christian, Newton in this song comes around to see that suffering grows us, it shapes us, it shows us our weakness, 
In other words, suffering is God's way of turning the enemy's own weapons against him. Satan despises us. He is happy to send suffering our way if it will make us love ourselves, draw into ourselves, and think of ourselves and not our God. And our God brings growth out of suffering. God takes the suffering that Satan throws our way, and what does he do? He turns it to good. Even when death comes our way, God uses that to bring victory to us, too. What does Paul say? To live is Christ, but die is gain. God takes the very tools of Satan and turns them against him. God frustrates his designs. Now, Christian, I, I'm sure of one thing tonight. The better you know God, the more, the more you can learn to trust him in the darkest times and to love him more than comforts. Satan has a goal for you, comfort, indifference, lethargy, self-confidence, self-sufficiency. That is Satan's goal for you. That is his plan for you. And if you are there, you are in his sweet spot. But your God has a goal for you. He wants you to be able to say with Paul, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. There are few expressions of mature faith more powerful than that. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we easily live not with eyes of faith, but with eyes of the world. When we suffer, we don't think of how you are shaping us for heaven and, and curing us of our love of things. When we face opposition, we may not see things from your heavenly perspective at all. And yet, Lord, we see it over and over again. That when the world looks at us and sees loss, you look at us and see your son and you see the work you are doing in us. Would you help us to look around ourselves with new eyes so that we might see the precious work you are doing? by changing us, growing us, and bringing us nearer all the time to be people who show forth your likeness. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.